Exactly. We're going into Baruch Sha'amar. Going into Baruch Sha'amar. Okay, so that's what I was going to start with. It's just reorienting ourselves here. With. Okay, so we started at the bottom with the brachos, which are focused on looking at the world around us and what we have and our bodies, meaning all the physical things, the tools, the means, the resources, the energy that Hashem has given us, and recognizing that it's from Him and therefore dedicated to Him, both. And actually, I, you know, I didn't bring the Rav Hirsch on Tehillim. He has a comment that it actually has to start with that to get to Psuki de Zimra. That would be nice. If I, that would have been a nice transition point, but I didn't bring it with me. Oh, never mind. Okay. And now we've moved up a step. And from looking inside of ourselves, now we look, not inside of ourselves, from looking outside of ourselves at the physical environment of us and the world around us, now we start looking at this world of the higher world of nature, which is the Pnim Shabachutz, right? So kind of looking in this, um, have this column of where we're functioning. So the lowest level here of the physical, totally physical world, the world of materialization, Asiya, was Chut Shabachutz, the outer part of the outer. And now we're moving to the inner part of the outer. It's still the outer shell, it's still the physical, but it's the inner part of the physical, okay? Um, which correlates to an inner courtyard. So we're still out in the world. We're not inside the base Hamikdash. We're still sort of out there in the world, but it's the inner part of the outside world, as opposed to the inside world, but also so not the outer part of the outside world. So it's this like moving it's farther in. It's a transition and it's farther in. And if we think about the inner part of our physical self, so that's our nefesh, meaning that's the aspect of our neshama which is connected to our physical self, that activates our physical self, it gives energy to our physical self. It's also our emotional state, because your emotional state is what gives the energy to your physical drive and motivation and accomplishments. Rav Orlowick compares, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, he compares the emotion, hi, welcome back. He compares the emotions to the motor or the engine of the car. And your mind, which we're not getting to talk about yet, that's for Shema, to the steering wheel. So your emotional state is that right? Do you want one? Is it really the same thing we've had before? The, the emotional drive, the, the will to do, and to feel, that's what really keeps you going. When the, something feels good, that will get you to do it. If it feels bad, it's hard to do it, right? You have to have this kind of running want in order to do. It's really related also to taiva, but it's also mood, right? When your mood is low, it's very hard to actually do anything. So all of these are different aspects of this pnim shabachutz, the inner part of the outer part, the inner motivator of the outside, okay. Sorry, what's the yeah. steering wheel? The steering wheel is your seichel. It's your intellect. So if you think of, you know, you have to make choices about what's right and wrong and not just go with the flow of what you feel like. So a car that's only got a motor and no steering wheel, it will go, it will crash very quickly, 
or will get nowhere fast. But a car that only had a steering wheel and no motor, you could direct it, but you can't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. But the common hello, hello, welcome back. So, so what was the motor? The motor is the emotion. This is Rabbi Orlowick talks about this, that the motor is the emotion, and the steering wheel is the seichel, the intellect. And we are in the stage, really, of emotions over here, of our emotional life in Pesuket so we ended last year. We did an introduction to Psuke de Zimra as a whole. We talked about a lot of different definitions. For example, we talked about Shira as the highest level of Nevuah. It's called song. Um, it refers more to the words. It's connected to the word for a leash, so something that connects two things, like a strap that would connect two things. We talked about Zimra, which is more a tune. Psuke de Zimra, right? And Psuke de Zimra is something that really is meant to be sung with a lovely tune. It's related to the word Zimura, pruning. So trimming back, giving focus to the energy. This is, you know, you have to have energy that's, that has to make it go, and that's associated with also being able to channel it and give it force and direction. Um, we related that to Yira Shemayim as well. And the recognition, Yira Shemayim would literally mean seeing heaven like having an awareness that that's there, and that's going to give us a feeling of awe, but that, that there's an energy that comes with the awe. There's an energy of being able to say, so I'm not going to do something because it will be wrong or how it will be seen, but the goal is that it leads us to somewhere else. So Rabbi Munk, and I think we ended with this last at the end of the last season, talks about Pesuket Zimmer. He says, this whole section of the Shachra service seeks to proclaim that all the events in nature and human life can be traced back to God. So when we talk about this level of Yitzira, I forgot to say this this time, we talked about it in the past, right? this is also the level of Mazel, and it's also the level of natural forces like um, climate, earthquakes, tidal waves, right? tsunamis, um, shifts in history, historical processes, fates of nations, um, topography, so where, where there's mountains, where there's rivers, and how that shapes the future of human societies. All of that is in this level of it's the natural world, but it's a force that acts upon us. So, if, you know, there's, most of our actions are down here in the world of Asiya. That is shaped to a great extent by these forces that are up here. There are inner forces like our emotional state, and there are outer forces that are outside of us and that have a very strong effect on what we do and where we end up and where we go. And how we feel. And how we feel. That's right. Some of that is not, you know, it's very nice to say that you're in charge of your mood and there's an extent to which you are and an extent to which you aren't, as anyone with hormones knows. So all the events in nature and human life can be traced back to God. That is the role of Psuche de Zimra. Any belief in intermediate powers must be <coughs> eliminated before man may approach God in prayer. Any belief in intermediate powers must be eliminated before man may approach God in prayer. So there's a process of zimra as in zimura, zimira, pruning. I have to say, is there something that's wrong in my thinking and correct it? Now this is something for every single day. <clears throat> so I want to point this out. It came up on Shabbos actually. This Shabbos we talked about tamim tia im Hashem being whole and wholehearted with Hashem. Um, which is part of the set of commandments, like it's forbidden to consult any kind of occult 
powers, so astrology, palm reading, fortune telling, right? All that is forbidden. It's Asr min HaTorah. And there's two aspects to that. One is that there, there can be truth to those kinds of things, okay? But nonetheless, they are forbidden, meaning it's not about true and false that those mitzvahs exist. In addition, it's just worth knowing that even what was known from those things is no longer known, the knowledge associated. So I remember, for example, there's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. It's called Tamim Tia. In English, it's called Faith and Folly by Rabbi Yaakov Hillel, who is well-known as a Kabbalist. And he wrote this book. It's got more haskamos than any safer I've ever seen. Who was it by again? Yaakov Hillel, Rabbi Sorry, Yaakov Hillel. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's well, is he an Eretz Yeah. He's Sephardi, but like very... I think yeah. my son was in Eretz Yeshiva. Yeah, he's the... It could be, yeah, I suppose. Be. Yeah, so it's something called Chacham Hillel, or Yaakov Hillel. He's, he was asked to write the book by the based in of the Edah HaHaredis. So it's a book for lay people about Kabbalah and about these mitzvos and prohibitions with respect to anything occult or Kabbalistic. So he has a section on how would you identify a charlatan because it's very popular for people to say, um, oh, before you get married, you should give your names into a mikubal to see if the names match. All I can say is everyone I know, all of my teachers, and he quotes in the Sefer, somebody came to him where the, the preparations for the wedding were made, and a mikubal told him the names don't match, they should call off the wedding, it won't be matzliach, and he, he said, that's a violation of Tomantia. You don't make decisions like that. He, the person didn't seem, I guess, perfectly satisfied, so he said, go talk to the stipler. And he had, someone, I think, in his family went with this man to the stipler, um, Rav, Chaim, Rav Yaakov Kanievsky, the father of Rav Chaim Kanievsky. And the stipler got so upset, he was like screaming and crying. And finally, a family member came in and asked them to leave the room because he was so upset. And finally, when he calmed down, they brought them back in. And he said, We go wholeheartedly with God. We don't start, you know, you don't start looking for a future on this and that. And he gave them a bracha. They shav shalom bias. Not a prophecy. Bracha, right? Shav shalom bias. And absolutely go ahead with the wedding. Like this is just, generally speaking, and, and when you see the way Rabbi Hillel writes, he knows about Kabbalah. The reason he wrote the Sefer, he was asked to write the Sefer, is because he knows. So he knows. And the more you read this book, you go like, wow, there's all this stuff that sounds like heebie-jeebie, and yet it's clear. It's clear that he understands that these things have an effect in the world and that things could be done. But he also tells you it's forbidden. So if you're going to somebody who's promising certain things, aside from the fact that you can sometimes see from their behavior, right? Great. Like yichud. There's a pro, it's, it's aser. If someone's violating the mitzvahs, then they're clearly not a great, righteous person. Like, period. Okay? Does that mean they're not trying to use practical Kabbalah? Who knows? But it's not allowed. So either they're not righteous, right? Or they're faking. Meaning either they're, they're using something that's prohibited or they're faking. So you have to be very careful with these things. Number one, because we don't want to... The goal here is to align our lives with Hashem and His will. Right? That's really what we're striving for. There isn't, uh, there's no Tylenol for that, right? There's no quick medicine you could take to just make your problems feel better that, that is a cure. If we want to be healthy, so we have to go and find out what the cure is. 
what's the diet that we need or the exercise that we need or what direction, you know, where do we need to be? Not, not like, can you shoot me up with an opiate and I'll feel better, <laughs> really good for now, right? That doesn't get us where we want to go really. Okay. So really for all of us then, you know, every time one of us says, if only I had said something different, the whole thing would have happened differently. So who do I think had the power over what happened? I'm thinking that I had power over what happened. Does that mean, I know, I mean, you know, this is El, it's a time for tshuva, it's a time for looking back and say, I shouldn't have said that, right? Maybe I said the wrong thing. Maybe I could have hurt someone by what I said, right? But did I think I had control over what happened? No, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. <laughs> Once happened to me that I thought something, I didn't say it, and it still got reported in my name and caused all kinds of problems. Hi, welcome back, okay. Every time we think, but it's my responsibility, and I'm overwhelmed, I can't do it, but if I don't do it, then everything will fall apart, right? We get really overwhelmed, right? You get close to Shabbos, and it's like, this isn't gonna happen. I can't do it, right? And it's like, well, who did you think was in charge? Okay, so we all need Psuke de Zimmer really every day. Like the idea that we need to refocus, there's no shame in the idea that we need to get our focus back on seeing that Hashem is in fact controlling all the forces of nature and history in the world. And the flip side of the same thing is that any belief, like any trust in intermediate powers has to be pulled back. Intermediate powers could be my own strength and power which is really what God has given me. It's not me. Or it could be the rain or the sun, right? Oh, if only there had, the El Nino had brought more rain, then my garden would have been, who brought more rain? <laughs> right? Who's controlling the pattern? Right. I saw a Ramban where he says, the Ramban points out over there, he says, he says, you know, Hashem has set up his channels for how he delivers his bracha into the world. He has his channels through which he pours that gift. But he controls them. So there was a time, especially when people would look at the stars. He gives the example of Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu says to Hashem, but you're saying that you'll give me all these brachos, but I don't have children, and I can't have children. Why? Because I saw in the stars I can't have children. This is like you're born under Jupiter in the east or the west, whatever. I'm not, don't, don't understand those things well enough to have remembered it properly when I read it, right? So Hashem lifts him up, right? Hashem picks him up above the stars and says, that's how your children will be. Don't look at the stars. This is the beginning of Tawantiyah. The bracha afterwards is tamim. His halach tamim. Walk before me and be tamim. And then we're commanded as a nation, tamim tiya also. Right? Like looking at the stars, you think that because you're born under this star in the west. So Hashem says, Ramban says, Hashem says, okay, I'll move the I'll move the planet to the west from you think it's because it was in the east, I'll move it to the west. Like, what's the problem? So the Ramban says Hashem moves the planets and stars in their orbits, and he changes them at his will. So just because it's generally a certain way, we, we can forget, God forbid, we'll forget 
that because things are a certain way, because gravity usually works a certain way, it's, we can attribute that it is the force. But these forces are what Hashem has put in place to deliver his bracha to the world. And it is always constantly under his control. Okay. Rav Hirsch describes Psuke de Zimra as an introduction to Kriyashma, in which the view of God in world and history, right, that's like those intermediate powers, is made into a bridge between Israel and duty. Now look at what he did there. Yeah. The view of God in world and history, in world and history, is made into a bridge between Israel and duty. We'll talk about this more as we get towards Shema. But I think what's incredible there is what he just showed us. Meaning, you can have a wall that's a barrier, or it can be a bridge, and it's the same construct. So it's, I'm sorry, bridge. From uh, it can be a bridge, or it can be a wall. From between God and us. Oh, I see. So we can look at these, the mazel or the climate or, you know, the effect, the decisions of governments and armies and hurricanes and whatever, and mood and health, right? And we can feel that those things are the problem or they are the source of the power, right? They are the issue. And in that sense, they become a barrier between us, like a wall thrown up between us and Hashem. But there's a different way we can look at the same things, and then they become a bridge. So if when we're looking at them, we are seeing God's hand acting through these forces, then those forces now are a bridge taking us closer to him which is a completely different, it's like you just turned it orthogonally, right? You just took this wall and you turned it 90 degrees or maybe you walked yourself 90 degrees around and now you see that it wasn't a wall the whole time, it was a bridge. Okay, that's really what we're doing in Psuche de Zimra. We are reorienting ourselves so that the way that we see nature and history is realizing that this is Hashem's force and Hashem's influence in the world and that everything is part of his pattern and his plan. Okay. So that's kind of really, that's really the recap of where we left off last year. Today I want to start by defining the word Hallel. Why do I want to define the word Hallel? So number one, there's a lot of Hallelujahs in Psuche de Zimra. It's the main tool. So Rav Hirsch says, he really says it elsewhere with regard to tefillin. He says, tefillin are a tool for tefillah, as tehillim are a tool for tehillah, which is quite awesome. Okay, usually I teach that about tefillin, but it, it works here helpfully too. Tehillim are a tool for tehillah. So there's, this is basically tehillim, right? Even in the brach of Baruch which is what we're going to be starting, right? We say, Hashem, we're going to praise you right? We're going to praise you with the songs of David, your servant. That's Tehillim. It's, it's essentially, Psalm Zimmer is essentially Tehillim. It's a section of Tehillim. So then once we understand, Rav Hirsch told us Tehillim is a tool for Tehillah. So understand that what I'm trying to achieve here then is Tehillah. That's what's going on in Psalm Zimmer is this thing called Tehillah which is the root is hey lamed, like Hallel, 
Okay. So Tehillah he defines as, this is in commentary on Tehillim Kuf Gimel, the proclamation of the manner in which God reveals himself through his acts. Proclamation of the manner in which God reveals himself through his acts. When a person says Tehillah or sings Tehillah, what he's doing is, or she's doing, is proclaiming the way that Hashem reveals himself to the world through his acts. His acts would be things like climate, movement of mountains, effects on nature and history, right? Okay, on us, proclaiming it. So we see that he does it, we become aware of it, and then there's a response, which is the tehillah, the proclamation of it. We've talked in the past about how that helps fulfill the purpose of those creations and acts, right? Everything Hashem creates into the world is to glorify him. When we proclaim it, we, that's like the final piece. Okay, so what's Hallel? And his definition of Hallel, this is in Tehillim Kuf Memvav, the literal meaning of Hallel is to reflect. This is like mind-boggling. Okay, because Hallel, we know it's praise, right? And that doesn't contradict Tehillah, proclamation of God's revelation through his actions. Right, think about what it is when you sing Hallel. It's saying, Hashem, you took us out of Mitzrayim, right? You defeated the Mitzrayim, you split the sea. It's describing his acts, and through doing that, the fact that he revealed himself through the actions. Okay, that's what, that's what Hallel's about. But the literal meaning of Hallel is reflect, like li- actual reflection of light. So in modern Hebrew, at least, hila means like a glow or a halo. Okay, it's, it's a light function. So to reflect, and this is still from Rav Hirsch's definition, what is reflection? Think about, like back to science class, right? You take like, you have like a candle and you have a mirror and the light reflects, okay. It's the tracing back of rays to the core from which they emanate. The light came this way and now you trace it back along the path it came from. That's a reflection the tracing back of rays to the core from which they emanate. He says also the acceptance of these rays as being emanations of that core, meaning if you're trying to line up the mirror to get a perfect reflection back, then you have to recognize where the source of the light was from. If you don't, then it's going to bounce off in a perfectly matching line that goes off in another direction. Okay. But I think the key thing is the tracing back of rays to the core from which they emanate. He says this helps us understand what Tehillah is and Hallel is. It's literally reflecting back the light to the core, to the place where it came from. So proclaiming that Hashem revealed himself through his actions is to look at those actions, to see past them, like it's a bridge, right? It's not a wall blocking my view. It's a bridge enabling my view, saying, oh, the light came from there, and now I describe that path backward. That becomes Tehillah or Hollow. There's a Gemara in Pesachim, Kuf Yud Zion Amud Aleph Basara Ma'amaros Shal Shevach Nemar Sefer Tehillim Tehillim uses ten different words to mean praise. There's a lot of different words for praise in Hebrew, right? They, people like to say that there's twenty words for snow, like in Eskimo. Whether that's exactly true or not, the concept the concept is true, which is that when you have the words for things, then you have the idea for the thing. And if you don't have a word for something, it's almost impossible to have a true 
conception of it. The word helps provide the idea. So I'll tell you a more scientifically proven one than the Eskimo thing um, is language. So children, they have a lot of studies from, not so much from now, thank God, but more from like the 50s, children who were born deaf. And for a long time, it was in fashion to prevent them from signing. Because the belief was that signing is so much easier than lip reading. And that lip reading would be necessary to function in the greater world. So you wanted to prevent signing so they would be forced to do the lip reading all the time. And because it takes like so many hours and years and years and years of work to develop. And what they found was the kids educated in those schools had much lower IQs. Now there was nothing wrong with their brains. Okay? And they weren't, they found that when you observed them in class, they would, they would answer what, but they wouldn't like ask why questions. The fact that their language was being stunted from a very early age prevented them from developing the thought processes that are associated with the words. The, it's a two-way street with words. It's not just an expression of what you're thinking. It actually affects what you think about, the way that you see them. So kids who sign from a young age don't have that problem because the signing is a legitimate language. It just may not be spoken by everybody in your neighborhood. But it's a full language, and it gives full expression to the thoughts. And so they're not stunted. Okay? I know in Japan, they call the, what we call the green light on the traffic light, they call it blue. <laughs> okay? Which, and in Israel, what we call the yellow light, they call orange. Okay? Now the truth is, if you look, sometimes they'll call it amber. It's really meant to be an orangish yellow. And the green is really a blue-green. And some of it has to do with what you expect it to be, is how you see it. It's just an example of how the language affects it. I remember asking my kids once, like, I don't know if I was asking in Hebrew, or I was asking maybe their friends are over, like to pass something blue. And there's this blank, like kahol. I, I translated it to kahol. And there, it's blank. There was nothing blue there. And I'm like, it was light blue. In Hebrew, that's tchelet, and it's a different color. Right. So for me, who like speaks English, where we use blue, we have a lot of names for different shades of colors. But blue is like this category, and I don't know exactly where it starts like on the spectrum of frequencies, because I'm not, especially on the blue end, I know more about the numbers on the red end, because I work in infrared, so like, you know. But whatever those, you know, frequencies are, it like starts somewhere after purple and like ends somewhere near green. And where you draw those lines has a lot to do with the language you speak and what you group into it. So is this blue or is this green? You know, is this blue or is it light blue? It's like a different color. And they like be like, I don't see anything blue. What are you talking about? And I'm like, how could you not see? And it's my fault. I use the word kahol because I'm thinking blue, blue, kahol. And it didn't occur to me that light blue is not kahol. It's chelet and it's a different color. Okay. So the Gemara says, there are 10 words for praise used throughout Sefer Tehillim. Godol Mikulan, the greatest of them all, is Hallelujah. Why? Shekolel, it includes within it. In one word, two things happen. You have shame, the name of God. And we've talked in the past, the name of God means a, a, a name, there's many names given that Hashem has taught us that we can use for him. A name of Hashem is a description of his interaction in the world, right? How we're to relate to him and how he's relating to us here. Kolel shem v'shevach. 
it includes in the same place the name and the praise, bavas echas, in one swoop, in one expression. Okay, do you hear how that's, that is Hallel. I mean, hallelujah, it has hallelujah, so it has praise with the name of God. But it's what hallelujah is. There's a reason why that's the name that includes it both, is a name of Hallel. Because Hallel is a reflection. It's seeing where the ray comes from and tracing it back. Seeing Hashem's actions and then attributing them back. So that def- it def- goes there. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Because it's already that's right. happened and you're looking at it. And it's easier looking backward to see that it was all a plan. Right. Right. That's so that's the peak. The first real Hallel is Az Yashir, mm-hmm. which is in Psukkah de Zimra. It's kind of the climax of Psukkah de Zimra is Az Yashir. In Az Yashir, what happened as we crossed the sea, Vayar Yisrael... Israel saw, I'm going to give you a, a different explanation of this Pasuk here, okay? The translation. Vayar Yisrael, Israel saw, Es Hayad Hagadola, the mighty hand, Asher Asa Hashem B'Mitzrayim, that God had done in Mitzrayim. In other words, this is not talking about the Makos. They saw how mighty God's hand had been the whole time in Egypt. Until now, you think, of course, we're, we've been out of Egypt for seven days, and we were not slaves already for a year and seven days. Since the first of the plagues, we were already not really enslaved. We were grateful for being saved. But in this moment, we realized that the whole slavery had had a purpose, not just the redemption. That, that is an incredible thing, to be able to look back and give praise for the whole process, from the beginning to the end, from the hard to the sweet. All right, I want to give you a mashal. I'm going a little slower, but I want to make sure to finish today because this actually is one whole idea. I want to give you a mashal. It's adapted from a mashal from Rabbi Lef, but I adapted it in terms of Rav Hirsch for a different purpose. But it's nonetheless, there's enough proofs to say it. I think this is true, I, even though I'm not giving the mashal the, in the context he gave it. Okay, so you imagine you have a light source. You have a chandelier, and it's got this light bulb in the middle that gives out the light. Okay, and then it's a chandelier. It's not just what we call like a cola light fixture, right? So you have around it a ball or globe, okay, and it's got all these little windows. Some of them are filled with colored glass. Some of them have little like patterns of apertures, you know, little, little punched holes in different shapes or sizes. Some might have slats, some have prisms. Okay, so now you have this beautiful light and it shines all over and everywhere that that light projects out is shining, it's shining the same light from the middle, but it doesn't look the same as it shines out. It's only giving over whatever is able to pass through the type of window it is. So you get something true about the light, but you don't have the whole story in in the light that comes through any one of those windows. But if you would follow the light back through the window and understand the nature of the window, then you would understand something about the nature of that original light that was shining through it, right? So if you know that this light passed through a green piece of glass, like a green filter, 
then you would understand something about what had come on the other side of it too, even though you can't see that. Okay. Now we have some image to work with where there's one source of light and bracha into the world. But Hashem created, let's call them 600,000 windows and channels of that light into the world in the neshamas of people. So Chazal, for example, describe a neshama as a chilek eloka mimal, a little piece of God on high. There's a shining of Hashem's light into the world that happens through humans. Okay, it's described in Rashi. I'm not actually saying anything like very way out. <laughs> okay, I'm just adapting this mashal as an image for it. But <coughs> I, if we had like many hours today, we could go through a lot of different examples of how that plays out and why I would feel that I could put that together that way. Okay, so there, there's a lot of places, right? It says Hashem created man, and Rashi brings. The malachim at first were confused. It looked like God was down there, like they didn't understand. Now, what, what could that mean? Like, we're not gods, right? That would be a very sad mistake for us. <laughs> it would be, like, really bad news for us to think such a thing. What it means is there's a mirror down there. Okay, we're talking about hollow. There's a mirror down there. And they saw something that reflected a glory that is God's glory. Maybe it was only in a little piece. But how could that be coming from down there if it's up there? That's what's confusing. And, but the Malachim don't have that at all? No. Uh -huh. They're not created in Etzelem Elohim. Uh -huh. In some ways, they're greater than us. We have greater potential. That we're not going to get to also. Right, That's like right. Shema and Shema but. But no, they're not created in Salam Elohim. Every nothing is duplicate. You know, there's no word in the Torah that's extra. There's also nothing created in the world that's extra. So there's the fact that there are like twenty-five thousand different flavors of beetles is not extra. Each one has something different about it, and that proclaims some new facet of God's action and activity and glory into the world. And the fact that they're all different people also. So the fact that there are malachim and there are people, there's something unique about people. What's unique about people is this Salam Elohim. So I feel safe in saying malachim do not have a Salam Elohim. And I, it's definitely so. It reminds me of a Midrash. Didn't it say that the angel said to Hashem, like, why are you giving them the Torah? Shouldn't yeah. they have it? So they were never created in the image of Hashem? There will, no, so no, no, Hashem they're not. Then like, well, that's not who they are. You're not supposed to get a Torah, remember? It's right. Like, uh, and he says, right. do you have right. a Yetzir Hara? Right. Do you, right? Yeah. That's basically what he says. He says, do you yeah. have parents that you need to be told, I don't need to tell them. Do, you, do you work six days a week that you need to be told on Shabbos not to work? That's what he says to them. Essentially, he says, do you have a Yitzhahara? Why? And this is not our topic for today at Sorry. all. But, so <laughs> but the aspect of Tselem Elohim that is most obvious to us is that we have free will. Hashem is completely free. He is not controlled by any of these forces. He controls them. He is absolutely free and powerful. In creating human beings in a tselem elokim, in some kind of reflected image, tselem is like a shadow, right? A shadow has kind of the shape of whatever formed it, but it doesn't actually look like it, okay? In creating Adam as a tselem elokim, he created us with free will, the ability to actually have some kind of power of choice. 
that is, in, in, it, it's a legitimate way to define sell malachim is to say free will, even. I wouldn't go exactly there. So when Moshe says to the malachim, like, do you have parents? Here? Mm-hmm. This means you have a Yitzhahara. Because man's created with a Yitzhahara. And it's exactly that contrast and that battle between Yitzhahara and Yitzhahara. And this is really Rosh Hashanah over here, mm-hmm. right? The, the ability to choose, which requires the ability to choose wrong. Sometimes it even requires actually choosing wrong and then getting it right afterward in order to really make it meaningful, right? That is what is uniquely human. That is how we serve him. That is how we are mamlichim and say, God, you are my king because I could be choosing to do something different and I prefer not to. I choose not to do it, not necessarily because it's what I felt like. I, right, this is where the seichel comes in, right? The, the, the steering wheel of the emotions, but because I want so much to do what you want me to do. So that's, that comes to hamlacha. Okay. But this is where I really wanted to go with it. So when Hashem created Adam, Adam Bitsalmo, Hashem created the man in his image. It's so hard to say these things. Like, you know, Hashem saw fit to tell us this. We would never be able to figure that, like guess it or even assume it. But Elokim Baro, so in the image of God, Hashem created him. And then in the next parakh, God formed man, the word yitzer there has two yuds, like yitzer, two yitzers together, right? He formed him of dust of the earth, and blew into his nostrils nishmas chayim, a living nishama. So man became a, a, more, a fully living creature. And Rav Hirsch says, I'm going back to his parish on Tehillim Kuf Memvav. None other is better qualified than the human soul to recognize the Lord from the revelations of his greatness and shown in his mighty acts, and to proclaim these demonstrations of divine power for all to hear. For the soul, okay, so what he, he said, the best, the best equipped created thing to recognize that Hashem is acting in the world is a human neshama. He doesn't well, say a Jewish neshama. He says a human neshama. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. You read more of Hirsch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Why? For the soul of man is aware that it is the invisible personality, which is the basic cause of all the effects that emanate from it. Inside of us, there's a neshama, and the neshama knows perfectly well that all the hashpa'a that we have, that we put out into the world and we affect others, is because of it. I mean, without it, you have a corpse. You don't have something that has an influence. Neshama recognizes that in itself. And by virtue of this awareness of the nature of its own self, the soul is capable of attributing all the phenomena of nature as well as the events of history. You hear the echoes of Sonia Zimmer there, right? To the one God, who is the one invisible personality, which is the basic cause of all that we can see and perceive. The soul, because it is a reflection of God, is best able to reflect God, <laughs> to see, to recognize him. In the fact that we were created with the ability to influence and to choose and to have an effect, the more we become aware of the fact that it is so, the better equipped we are to recognize that everything in the world is also being motivated out there by someone who has free will and power, but is not visible. Just like there's someone in me who's doing that. And thus, the soul can recognize him 
through these phenomena and events and declare his greatness in terms of them. This is called Hallel. Literally, and this is where I got the first definition, literally to reflect the tracing back of rays to the core from which they emanate and the acceptance of these rays as being an emanation of that core. Yeah. Okay. So what we have here is a huge leap forward, I think, in terms of how to think about Hallel and what we're trying to do. There's an aspect of looking inward that goes into this looking upward here. It's seeing and reflecting back, and it's also looking in and seeing that there's a reflection coming from somewhere. You can look in either direction to see that light as long as you end up recognizing where the source of it is. And I think that's a new insight into Tehillim is a tool for Tehillah. Tehillim is a tool for this process, for this way of thinking that helps me recognize that. Here, one second. And I think there's something very exciting and very obligating there. Because really, there's a demand that I have to think of myself in terms of what I contribute to others. What is my effect on the world around me? In order to go through this process, I have to recognize that there's a me in there, right? I'm simplifying. I, I, I could get nitpicky about exactly how I'm speaking. I don't know. There's a neshama inside of me, and there is a source of light and life that is fulfilled when I am giving outward. I don't know, I, I, I do know, but my conscious mind is not naturally necessarily aware of what color is my prism. What piece of the light am I shining out? That might require some self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Okay. Literally. literally. The analogy to the, yeah. the light, yeah. the stained glass, the chandelier, or what, yeah. what are you putting out yeah, what aspect of Hashem's light yeah. is shining out through me? Yeah. There's an neshama in me, which right. is like an aspect of Hashem's light. What color is shining out of me? And what, like our actions are regulating the light coming through. My cho- yeah, yeah, my choices, right? I don't always have perfect control of results, <laughs> but my choices, when I, it really goes back to that idea of what is my mission? What am I here for? I'm really here to shine that light out. I, I'm really here to shine that light out. And people will see it, but what will they see? And that comes down to choosing. So there's, there's both a, an excitement of, of discovery. Of, it is a very exciting thing when you start to get a sense of what light you shine into the world. What do you mean to other people when you're at your best? What does it tell them about Hashem in their lives? It does, even not by preaching, when you're surrounded, when, when there's somebody really good in your life and not selfish who's, who's thinking about you and that you can rely on, you get the sense that there's a good God in the world who's there that you can rely on. Someone who has the opposite experience from people builds the opposite idea of God from people. We literally are shining God's light into the world. And what that means to people has to do with our choices and our awareness of the effect that we can have on others. But it also means there's a responsibility of thinking about what am I contributing? What am I actually adding to the world? And am I, how am I doing with that? How am I doing well and how am I doing poorly? Okay. I want to I end with an idea that relates to Rosh Hashanah. I mean, you can see why I mean, this is Rosh yeah. Hashanah, okay? But 
All right. So yesterday, uh, not yesterday. I'm sorry. Today's Tuesday. On Shabbos, we read the Haftarah Parsha Shoftim is one of the one of the Shiva Dinachemta, the seven Haftaras of comfort. So this is Anochi Anochi begins Anochi Anochi Hu Menachemchem. I I am the one who comforts you. And the Hirsch commentary there. He really addresses why is it Anochi Anochi two Anochis, and what does it mean that Anochi is the one who comforts you. Anochi, God promises here that Anochi is always Anochi. Anochi means I, right? And we've, we, have we talked about the distinction? We first talks about the difference between Anochi and, and Ani. So Ani is me as opposed to everybody else. It's a distinction. Anochi is me, like as a unique whole personality. Okay? So when it comes to God, we don't really know what that means. When it comes to a person, okay, but it's, it's a me as who I am. Hashem says, Anochi is always Anochi, that I keep my merciful paternal eye on you. The firm confidence in this fact is that which brings you solace. Okay, I left out the middle clause where he says, how do you get the firm confidence in this fact? Like, what, you can't just tell me that. God says, I am I, I'll always love you. Well, how do I know that? How would I see that? How could I rely on it and actually be comforted by it? The firm confidence in this fact, which finds fresh confirmation every minute in the fact of your continued existence. The fact that I exist confirms to me that there is a loving God who is always looking out for me. You know, like the Greeks said, I think, therefore I am. It's like I am, therefore I am thought about. The fact that I am, I can look into my own self and existence, no matter what crazy stuff is going out in the world, no matter how horrible the goal is. You should hear some of the prophecies of Yeshaya. But ultimately, it comes down to the fact that, you've, that you exist. Look inside of there and see that there's a reflection. Anochi, anochi. That's really what he says. Anochi, anochi, hu menachemchem. The fact that there's a reflection, I and I. That is what comforts you and protects you from every attack of despondency. Okay. The Pachad Yitzchak, I love it when we can, okay. Pachad Yitzchak on Rosh Hashanah, Maimur Chafei. Unbelievable. I'm going to hustle because we, we got to finish here. Chazal talk about the Pasuk that we quoted. Vayipach, Hashem blew into his nostrils a nishmas chayim, a living neshama. So Chazal say, Essentially, they say, why does, why does Hashem say in the Torah that he blew it? What is, the, what is blowing? Okay. So the way Chazal say it is, where did he blow it from? Mitocho nofach. From inside of him he blew. Okay. This, God is not physical. He doesn't have an inside. Right? It's the question. Kol neshima, says Rav Hutner, every breath, comes from the deepest inside of the breather. That's what a breath is. Mitzvah shofar, the mitzvah of shofar, is the mitzvah that we fulfill with the power of breathing. How, how do you blow a shofar? You blow it. <laughs> you push your breath real hard from deep inside through the shofar and create this voice. The time for blowing the shofar is the day when Adam was created. In other words, the day of Vayipach Ba'apav Nishmas Chayim. So the breath that is coming from inside of us to blow a shofar 
is the breath that comes from inside of God to make us alive. Right? It's back to Anochi Anochi, that we are, we have a soul, an Hashemah, that is put into us as a piece of God. So we're back to this reflection. I, I feel like this Pachad Yitzchok gives such a visual. There's different ways you could take it. But such a visual to take into hearing the Tekiyas HaShofar of Hashem breathing life into us and now the breathing out of it as the declaration of Kabbalah's Malchus. Hashem is king. And it's a declaration of tshuva. I mean, it's all wrapped up into the voice of the shofar, right? That's really where it's coming from. And I don't know, I felt like that was just like mm, such yeah. a helpful yeah. beginning, it's like a launch pad of thought. Yeah, and it's real. Line. Can you repeat the last line? You said the breathing in and the breathing out is the definition of Malchus. And it, it, that breathing out of the shofar is the declaration of Malchus. It's also a declaration of, of tshuva. I've done wrong. There's a, there's a crying and there's an exulting. Both. That, that's a, maybe a different topic for Rosh Hashanah. So Why the sound of the shofar is... Wake up all, you know? Right. You always hear and learn. It's, wake up to what? It's me reflecting <laughs> back. What am I reflecting back in this? Mm-hmm. What is my call back out? Right? Because it's that Nishma Chaim that's also the root of human speech, the capacity of speech. It all goes together. Okay. Right. It's like they want the conference room. Okay. It is 9.05. Right. Yeah, but we probably should get it.